Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. It's the stuff of horror films. Child sex offenders. They're smart, manipulative, and ruthless. My guest today has interviewed over a thousand of them, and he's got a lot to tell you. Join me. could be your friends, your neighbors, your teachers, or unfortunately, your family members. According to the CDC, roughly 90% of children who are abused in the U.S. know their abuser. One in four girls and one in 13 boys will become a victim of child sex abuse. It's every parent's worst nightmare. And today, we're going to go deep into the mindset and methods of the child sex offender. I'm very fortunate to have one of the world's foremost experts on the subject. Dr. Michael Burke is a clinical and forensic psychologist in private practice right now in Northern Virginia. He spent 12 years as the chief psychologist and the chief of the behavioral analysis unit at the U.S. Marshal Service. Prior to that, he was a staff psychologist in the sex offender treatment program, for eight years at Butner Prison in North Carolina. I met Doc Burke when he was still working at the Marshal Service, and I have to say, and Doc, with respect, within five minutes of us speaking, you completely and totally creeped me out. The story you told me, which will be another episode in the future, had me up at night, uh, and I'm literally not joking. I can't tell at a cocktail party if you're a magnet for people, or if you clear the room. Yeah, I'm probably a magnet for like the first three minutes. And then it just, you know, I, I, I dampen the whole room after that. And people just sort of drift away. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, I am very happy to have you today. And secondly, I want to introduce Caitlin Ward. If you've been following us on social media, and I hope you have, you've seen her name a lot. She works with me at Chasing Evil. She is all things social media. But more appropriately for this particular podcast, she's a young mom. And as a young mom, she's had to become more vigilant and evaluate all the people that her daughter may come into contact with. Yeah, absolutely. It's our job. So you, you come by it, uh, whether you want to or not, you have to develop those instincts. All right. I have a lot of questions. But before we talk about someone who is a sex offender, I'd really like to delve into their background. I mean, are they sex offenders when they're 10, when they're 12? Are they living a normal life? Or do they become sex offenders as they progress through life? And what are the factors making them into a sex offender? Is it nature versus nurture? Is it biological? Or are there environmental factors that are pushing them in that direction? Yeah, so that's that's a real common question that I get is, you know, where do where do sex offenders come from? And it's a it is a great question because, you know, the implications are that maybe we could do something about this at the at the outset. You know, maybe there's something that we could do to help prevent um, people from going down this path and eventually end up harming children. Um, the, I guess the most honest answer is we really don't know, quote unquote, where it comes from. Like many things in my field of clinical psychology, uh, we think it's a mix of both nature and nurture. And by that, I mean sex and, and people's interests and orientations and predilections are for the most part biologically um, given to us. We don't really, you know, tick a box in seventh grade and 
decide, you know, the people to whom we want to be attracted and the, the particular fetishes or the particular interests we have, it's, it's, they, they, they unfold and, and people Mm -hmm. realize throughout adolescence, uh, sort of who they are, just like they figure out their identity in a lot of different ways. So pedophiles, people who are sexually attracted to children, um, know that they have those attractions in almost all cases during adolescence. They, they're they aware when they're 13 and 14 that they're attracted to, say, a 16-year-old, a six-year-old child. When they're 25, they're attracted to a six-year-old. When they're 50, they're attracted to a six-year-old. They, they tend to know that and it's very, um, it gets solidified and it doesn't really move. And, and that's really the case with all of us with, um, with our own interest. It's, it's, you kind of get what you get and whether you like it or not, and it, and it tends to stay with you throughout the lifespan. Um, now, having said that. Is it genetic? So it's not necessarily genetic in the sense that some people think about it, where it's like passed down from, you know, grandfather right. or grandmother down to, you know, their, their, their offspring and so on. You know, I can give you a really good example of, um, of, of how this, uh, you know, an, an illustration of this, uh-huh. which is that there are people who are sexually interested in infants. So um, we call that infantophilia, or there's other um, terms for it, but people that are sexually attracted to infants, uh, nepophilia. And when I was talking to someone who had this particular interest, I, I, you know, I said to him, uh, you know, what, what is it that's sexually attractive about an infant? I mean, when you see an infant, if someone doesn't have the courtesy, and I say that jokingly, but to dress their child in all pink or all blue, most of us wouldn't know what gender our coworkers baby is if they brought the right. thing in it just right, looks right. like a baby it's got little fingers and little toes so there's not a lot of maleness or femaleness to an infant so i said what is it that's attractive and the person said you know what's arousing to me is the the cooing of the child and the smell of the child and the softness of the child's hair and skin and the way the child made eye contact with me and the way the child's fingers curled around my finger and if you talk to a new mom, Caitlin's a young mom, and if you said, and I can't put words in her mouth, but if I said, you know, did you have a an experience after the birth of your child where, you know, he or she, where you felt this bond, you know, you felt some really powerful connection. And, and, and there's parents and fathers too that would say, oh man, it, it was like this amazing um, experience that I hadn't had before. And if you said, what really solidified that what was what were the signs they would say it was the the cooing of the child and the the smell of the child and the softness of their hair and skin and the way they made eye contact with me and the way their fingers Mm -hmm. curled around my it's the identical script it's just that it's almost like the plug was taken out of powerful emotional bond and instead, it was plugged in powerful sexual attraction. So it's this just this this fault or this short in the wiring where they've associated that with sexual arousal instead of another completely appropriate emotional reaction. So is it nurture or excuse me, is it nature? Well, we do think that there is some indications that the brain is involved, that this is, you know, has some neurological components. Um, and there's some interesting studies that have looked at things like whether you're left-handed or right-handed, uh, whether you're short or tall, your IQ. And pedophiles have statistically significant differences in some of those areas compared to people that are attracted to adults. So those aren't things that you choose. Those aren't things you learned. Those are things that were biologically predisposed. But then there are also adverse childhood experiences, things that happen to people that expose them to deviant sexuality or normalize deviant sexuality or that somehow you know, uh, influence their, what would have been their normal psychosexual development. And it can make those more likely to manifest or kind of warp the, warp the, you know, uh, the stream, warp that wiring uh, in a, in a way that's much more profound. Just to break it down, I'm assuming 
that 99.9% of the pedophiles are male? Um, it may not be quite that high, but it's it's definitely in the in in, in the 90s. Um, there are a lot of female pedophiles that walk around undetected. Uh, some of their behavior mm-hmm. gets dismissed. They're much less likely to be identified as a perpetrator, much less likely to be reported, uh, particularly if there's a male victim or, or female. Female victims don't want to report because they're concerned about the, you know, uh, being perceived as gay if they're not ready to come out. Male perpetrators will not report for a variety of other reasons, particularly teenagers, uh, because they may enjoy the 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 um, the acts, they may um, you may want it to continue. They may have some kind of bond with the perpetrator if if she's close to them, or has some sort of relationship. But females are much less likely to be um, identified as as perpetrators. They're seen as sort of benign, like sort of this, you know. Uh, um, you know what? Uh, what Oprah or somebody once called a um, a illicit love affair. You know that's it's not an illicit love affair. It's sexual abuse. It's sexual assault. But there, that relationship, quote unquote, is seen as as innocent, and and that the male is not really seen as much as a victim. He's he's just he's seen. Uh, there was a there was an article in a paper that um, from a. a, a a woman, uh, she was a football trainer. She was uh, someone uh-huh. that worked with high school football players. And the headline was high school player treated to oral sex by trainer. This was a, this okay. was actually portrayed as a treat versus right. a sexual assault, right? right? So women are less likely to be ide- arrested. They're less likely to be indicted. They're less likely to be found guilty. They're less likely to be sentenced to any kind of uh, prison time. Their, their sentences are much less. They're less likely to be given any kind of time on supervision, less likely to go to the sex offender registries. So they fall out of our system at every step right. of the way. And what about other factors like ethnicity? Yeah, that's a really interesting question as well. I don't get asked that very often. But when I started, it was primarily Caucasian males. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, one of the phenomena that we see is that the perpetrators tend to match the race of victims. So we saw mostly Caucasian victims uh, in child sex abuse images. And the second uh, race that would be depicted would be Asian boys and girls. And um, you rarely saw an African-American victim in in child sex abuse images or Native American or other uh, races or ethnic groups, Hispanic. Now, uh, in the past, you know, decade or so, we have seen uh, various other ethnic groups are um, are showing up in child sex abuse material, and the the um, the dynamics of perpetrators is changing. So we have increases in other uh, racial and ethnic groups. So that um, you know now I I I think it's um, I don't have those exact figures, but I know that in the mm-hmm. past decade those the, those uh, proportions have been changing. And now it's um, everybody's more or less uh, becoming representative of the populations uh, you know, right, in their community. Right. And Caitlin, when you take your daughter to school prior to hearing what Dr. Burke had to say, did you feel relatively safe when there were no males around and you were a little less concerned? I always have to think about those kinds of things. I ever since, you know, growing up as a as a girl, my mother, you know, sort of gently instilled that fear into me at age appropriate levels to make sure I was, you know, being cognizant of my surroundings and being safe. So absolutely. Every time I have my daughter go to school, go to a birthday party, go to a play date, I'm always very aware of who's going to be there. Um, You know, I can't be I can't be all places at once. I can't guarantee there is some act of faith and trust that you have to put into other people. Um, but absolutely I have to be cognizant um, because you don't know, and you don't know sides of people. You don't know a parent of another kid that maybe is Mm -hmm. a female or a male that might have some issues. I, I would never want to take any kind of a risk with my daughter, as I'm sure most parents do. Um, if, if I can do something to make sure I'm, I know what I'm talking about. And that, Mm -hmm. that even means sometimes, you know, I've Googled people, um, you know, parents of, uh, right. my children's friends and things because 
what harm? What harm is it? And if it can give me a little bit of the background that I need, it will make me feel better. <laughs> of course it will. And as parents, I think we're doing that no matter how old our children are. And that's okay. But I think the more you know, the more awareness you have. And then, of course, the more paranoid you get. And maybe that's a good thing. But then maybe we become way too suspicious of every person. Doc, is there a type and... But before we get into that, how many sex offenders do you think you've spoken with over the course of your career? I don't know the exact number. Over a thousand um, came through that facility uh, during my tenure there that I would have interacted with either evaluating, interviewing, or conducting treatment of some kind. Um, I also worked in an outpatient program in Florida. We had, I don't know, 500, 600 sex offenders uh, in that program as well. So I don't, I, you know, again, I don't know the number, but well over a thousand, um, a thousand offenders in my career. Wow. Um, I mean, I think it's important to say, because when you say something, it is based on an extraordinary level of experience. You definitely get a perspective, the more of, of anyone that, you know, any particular group that, that you interact with or work with, but in a therapeutic setting, you know, I also spend a lot of time. Uh, getting to know them. You know, we spent 18 to 22 months, which each offender, we ran over 40 groups a week. So we're, we're interacting with them eight, nine, 10 hours a day, you know, right. every single day where our offices were in the housing unit in their residential treatment program. So we were, mm -hmm. you know, you know, yeah, I got, and I also polygraphed them. I'm a polygraph examiner. And so we would. Yeah. I thought that was actually something that was really interesting in your LinkedIn. The fact that you are a federal polygrapher. In fact, you wrote an article called the tactical use of polygraphs and sex offenders, which I thought was really fascinating. Yeah. Tactical polygraph was a technique that um, some colleagues of mine, um, you know, came up with and brought to my attention and, and it's, you know, it's, there's nothing uh, too mysterious about it, but it's incredibly effective in um, when you have someone ar arrested for possession or receipt of child abuse images, uh, what used to be called child pornography. We don't use that term anymore, but when someone is found in possession of these, um, we have found it's super important to, um, to use polygraph as soon as possible to look for contact victims, to look for quote unquote, real victims, they're all real victims, but uh, people want to know about victims uh, whom that offender has um, has molested or raped or assaulted in real life. And so that's a great way uh, to, to find victims. And then we can provide those victims with services and we can, you know, continue to expand and find out what else this, this person may have done. It's usually, this right. is usually just the tip of the iceberg. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. And so as you're creating this picture of what a pedophile or sex offender is, when somebody comes to Butner, and they would deal. Yeah. They would deal with you. Would you create a profile, psychological profile of each person? When an offender comes into a treatment program, they're they're immediately evaluated during an intake. That's to make sure they're not suicidal and uh, other mental health issues. We need to be aware of right off the bat. Um, but then once they um, get into a program, whether it's a drug program or a sex offender program then a psychologist would begin this. Um, in our case, we begin a, what we'd call a psychosexual evaluation. And that's a, it's a very comprehensive process where we'd have them fill out a psychosexual history questionnaire, which is about 55 pages of, of information about their offense history and about their background and their substance abuse and all sorts of things that are known risk factors for sexual offending. How honest do you find those people to be on those questionnaires? So generally, uh, people are 
people are dishonest about their sexual history, no matter what. I mean, we could, we could line up just random people in the mall and ask them to tell us their, their secret sexual fantasies, the dirtiest thing they've ever done. And, and they're not going to tell you the truth. I mean, they're going to lie about what they think about. They're going to lie about what they've done. They're going to lie about the number of partners they've had. They're going to, you know, they're just going to lie about it. It's something that's considered very taboo, very private. It's um, sometimes embarrassing or shameful for people. And uh, so you don't, you don't get the truth. Now, when you're dealing with something like sexual interest in children or other deviant predilections, animals and weird fetishes or, you know, other things that might be illegal, then of course you, you now have an exponential increase in denial and defensiveness um, people are going to lie about, you know, about what they've done. So if someone's been arrested for possession of child abuse images, they may admit that they were aroused to those images, but they're not going to admit to touching children right off the bat. It's going to take a bit of therapeutic work. It's going to take developing trust. Um, and they may not have, you know, I mean, that's mm -hmm. of course possible that they've constrained their behavior to that. But anything beyond what is known at the time of arrest um, is is not necessarily something they're going to be all happy about sharing with you, you know, uh, upon meeting you. Um, now, right. I, I have to say there's a small percentage of men uh, who came into our program and and they they were done. They were they were done keeping secrets. They were they had looked over their shoulder waiting for the cops to knock on their door for a long time. And they came in and said, like, I'm actually oddly relieved to be here because all I've done my whole life is hurt people and like be paranoid about cops showing up one day. And now that everything is out, um, I'm ready to like begin treatment. I'm ready to tell you. So is, you it, is there a higher percentage of people that are, self-aware enough to know right from wrong do they know they've been doing they've been doing bad things or do they do they excuse it in some way yes that yeah that's a that's another great question because we we have two kinds of offenders when it comes to that one we call ego dystonic which means that their their fantasies bother them what their impulses bother them. They, they feel guilty and remorseful. They, they feel ashamed. They, they are full of sometimes self-loathing and guilt. Um, mm -hmm. Then there's others where it's egocentonic, which is just a fancy way of saying that it's, it doesn't bother them. They're not, they, sometimes they even think that they, uh, they'll join an organization. Like there's organizations out there that advocate for adult child sexual activity right. and they'll they'll join these organizations they'll lobby congress to pass laws to make it legal and reduce the age of consent so these are very very distorted individuals and so what what happens when people begin to do things that are very shameful or embarrassing but they want to do them but they know they shouldn't is they have to find a way to get over that dissonance they have to find a way to indulge what they want to do instead of doing what they should do and, and everybody does this on a, on a lower level. We all do it. Like we break diets right. and we have an excuse for why we broke it. Well, it was my sure. birthday. Well, it's just this one cupcake and it, yeah. I didn't eat three. I only ate one. And so we have a way of minimizing and justifying and intellectualizing almost everything sure. we do that we shouldn't do speeding. Yeah. You know, why did you speed? Well, I was going the basic speed law or whatever. So, so these are lies that we tell ourselves in order to make our guilt diminish, in order to allow us to do it again. And sex offenders do the same thing, but at a, at a much more, uh, you know, it's a more of a warp, right? Because you have to think how warped must you be to justify sexually assaulting a child? And, you know, the answer is you, you, that's, a, that's a very, very severe distortion. But, you know, they manage to do that, to justify and rationalize what they do tell themselves sort of stories about why it was okay uh, that they did what they did. Um, you know, mm -hmm. if, if, if they're a true pedophile, there's other types of offenders like psychopaths, for example, who don't have to do that because they don't care. There's, there's no guilt at all. There's no remorse. There's no empathy. Right. So they, they don't have to go through those machinations because 
they don't care to begin with. And then the third would be a sadist. And a sadist actually is excited about hurting other people. So they would not distort because they want to relish that pain. They want to enjoy the, the idea that they may have traumatized somebody. That's exciting right. for them. It seems like the, the common thread around all of this is, is the um, maybe the obstacle, but also maybe how you're helping to define what this is and how you can differentiate is culture. Because you said, you know, ethnicity was, was typically white Caucasian men. And then more recently, I think, I think more data has come out, more interest has come out to shine a light on other ethnicities that were ha- having sexual abuse problems. And then you said from male to female, you know, it's kind of like the idea of the bros high-fiving that, oh, he got the teacher or he got the, you know, the older woman. And and so good job. And that says culture to me. And then same here, I, I hear, you know, where does the shame lie and how much shame, how much guilt do you have? That also feels partly cultural to me. So is that something that you look at? So we look at all kinds of dynamics that affect why and how somebody um, is the way they are, right? This is true in psychology, you know, in general, right? So like if you were doing marital therapy, it's what are the stereotypes that people have about men and women and where did they learn those in their family of origin and, and you know, what narcissistic traits do they have or whatever. So with sex offenders, we are going to look at all kinds of things that reinforce those distortions. What we're trying to do is sort of undistort the distortions and and get them to take responsibility and be accountable for the predilections they have, and then hopefully help them manage those 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 things. But I think to your one, one thing I want to make clear is the culture that I was speaking about with Caucasian males and 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 other ethnicities was online behavior. With regard to contact sexual abuse. Contact sexual yeah. abuse is pretty much constant across all cultures. Oh, wow. uh, it is pretty much constant all around the world, and it has pretty much remained constant throughout time. So that is not a something that varies significantly between cultures or over time, is the abuse of children. That has always existed. Pedophilia has always existed, and, and it's... Um, you know, yeah, it's fairly constant. Now, there are certain environments, um, certain Native American uh, communities uh, on the reservations where historically there have been much higher uh, instances or, or an incidence of rape, of, of sexual assault against children. Uh, up in Alaska, I spoke to a judge one time when I was visiting remote uh, villages up in Alaska that were only accessible by ice plane. And this judge said in this particular community where we were, the sexual assault rate for children, for, for girls is 90%. So 90% of girls in that town had been sexually assaulted. And she said, this is an anecdotal reports. These are adjudicated cases in my courtroom. She right. said, if a child makes it through high school without being assaulted, it's a miracle. So wow. there are places that exist in America and in our world where there is unaddressed issues that contribute to sexual assault. There are needs that are not being met. There are, there are issues that people need to pay attention to because there are children being harmed at a, at a much higher rate than in other places. Now, that's not because of the culture. Like that's not because of the, because they're Inuit or because they're Yupik or because, you know, they're Filipino or whatever it might be. That is a function of all of these other dynamics, um, poverty and substance abuse and, and, you know, the, the cultural, um, the way, the way that they have been treated historically and, and, you know, so many other things from a sociological perspective that I'm not an expert in, but all of these things contribute to a context in which that's much more likely to occur. Um, And the enforcement is very difficult out there. Uh, Reporting is very difficult. Um, You know, there's no shelters to take the kids. There's no, the resources are very scarce. So, you know, there are issues that are in pockets where, where we see spikes, but um, but yeah, overall, 
this is something that exists in every culture and uh you know no one no one is immune and no one can say you know point the fingers at anyone else because it's 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 pervasive but we do look at that you know and 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 I'll just add this there is also this online culture as well right kids for example children um teenagers nowadays have a very different culture than 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 I had when I was young because certain things have become ubiquitous everyone has a cell phone and certain behaviors that are going on in line with self-produced images and sextortion and things like that those things never existed so kids have a different view of sexuality and are exposed to sexuality in a way that you know may be molding them and maybe affecting them in ways that heretofore we didn't really have to deal with i give a quick example of you know when i was when i was in elementary school um one of the hilarious things to do with my buddies would be to go to a big huge dictionary in the library and look up some of the words that we had seen written on a you know a bathroom wall or something and we would fall over laughing and you know these would right. be this would be hilarious well now you know our children your children when they're of age will not be going to a dictionary they're going to be putting that in a search engine they're going to be putting it in in a, in google or whatever and what they're going to see is much different from what i saw it's not going to be a medically appropriate definition it's going to be full color full sound with links to all kinds of other material so how does that affect someone who's developing sexually who's not mature enough to really grasp the ramifications of what's happening we don't know that yet we don't we don't know how that's going to affect the children of the future in your experience both i mean online and in person how do pedophiles groom their victims yeah grooming grooming is almost a you know discussion in itself because it can be it can be very nuanced very um complicated but the 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 easiest way i guess to explain it is just the offender's way of of worming their way into the child's um past the child's defenses and that is both the child's own defenses as well as the those external defenses the the support system around the child the people who are going to be vigilant or should be vigilant so they have to manipulate the support system the the guardians uh as well as get through that child's own defenses so how do they do that well if you're struggling to lose weight you've probably heard about weight loss medications like wigovi or zepbound and you might be wondering if they're right for you meet plushcare a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey if you qualify they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home to get started visit plushcare.com/weightloss that's plushcare.com/weightloss plushcare.com/weightloss they're going to do a sort of a, a pushing the boundaries uh going a little bit you know going as far as they can and then taking a step back and then moving ahead and taking a step back it's this it's this process of trying to gain the child's trust so actually the first step is they have to choose an ideal victim so the first thing an offender is going to do is tr- try to choose a victim that they think they're going to be able to exploit down the road how do you tell what the ideal victim yeah, is yeah right the ideal yeah cuz i'm sure i'm sure your listeners are going to be like well how the heck do i make sure my child is and other children around you know that i care about are not vulnerable and and right. and that's that's an important part of like my work what i try to do is learn as much i as i can about the offenders to sort of reverse engineer um their thinking to 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 get ahead of this to to inform mm-hmm. parents and organizations about um you know how to uh how to make our children hard targets how to make our children you know how to build up those defenses so right. so one of the you know one of the things they're doing is looking for children um they they want a need that they can exploit they want a weak patch they want an achilles heel and they're going to mm-hmm. be looking for a child who sometimes has very practical needs that need to be fed like like the child's being neglected the child needs food the child needs a winter coat 
then it will be other kinds of needs like the child needs a, a quote unquote positive male role model. Uh, might be a single mom that, that you know, thinks it's great that there's a male in the church or in their community that wants to take their boy to a baseball game. Um, and they see this as a fantastic, you know, relationship and they're encouraging that and perhaps even being blind to some yellow flags that are going off just because they're so happy about the fact that their child is, you know, getting some of his or her needs met. So they're going to look for things like, like that. It could be, if it's not physical needs, it could be emotional needs. So they're going to look for right. a child who has low self-esteem, a child who really wants to be told she's pretty or that his or her parents shouldn't treat them like a kid because they're really like, should be treated more like an adult and mom shouldn't right. have taken away your cell phone or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They want to be told that they're, that they're, that, that this person is falling in love with them. They want to be, you know, these romantic um, fantasies are being filled. These offenders are going to be um, taking the time, if it's online, to find out as much about the child as they can, to see where they're having troubles with their parents or where, where, where their needs are, and then they're going to exploit those. They want right. to build up trust. They're going to start desensitizing the child to um, sexual conversations they may show the child sexual uh, images eventually. Might start off with like sexual jokes, sexually inappropriate stories. That's um, that's the first step of desensitizing somebody. Is it? Is yeah, desensitizing could story. be showing them things or saying jokes. And usually, what that's going to be accompanied by one of the red flags that I I tell parents to watch out for is this this idea of secrecy. Anytime there's an adult who's not you as a parent, right. um, telling a child that something is going to be secret, that we have things that we do that are secret, that we don't tell people, that's a red flag. And I actually would share that with children at a very young age. There's a big difference between a surprise, like we're going to surprise mommy on her birthday, so don't say this. There's a big difference between a surprise and a secret. So, it's, mm -hmm. and, and you define the difference and, and a secret is, 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 is often a red flag. Don't tell your mom this. Don't tell your dad this. Don't tell anybody this. I could get in trouble. We could get in trouble. Any of that sort of manipulation. Then they're going to desensitize the child to touch. So they'll start with things that are innocuous, as you might imagine. They'll start with a tousling the hair, fist bumps, handshakes, uh, arm around the shoulder. Then it becomes a neck rub or a quick back rub. And then it becomes wrestling around or swimming lessons or something where they're putting hands on your child, but they're doing so in a way that the child's like, oh, this is okay because X, because the context is X. Um, and so they will begin to desensitize the child in, in, in other ways. Then they're going to be setting these, um, these other hooks or these thorns, which are um, little, I'm using too many metaphors here, but they're like little landmines in case the child ever in the future decides to disclose. For example, they will say things that make the child believe that they're complicit, that they're cooperating right. in the abuse, so that later on they could say, well, I, I only did that because you said that it was fun. I only did that because you came back the next day and said you wanted to do it again. Like right. they, they, they manipulate the child into believing that it was their fault or at a minimum mm. that they were co- they're, they're, they're equally guilty so um, that the, so the teenager doesn't dare tell anybody because it reflects poorly on them, or they're also will set the hook that they're not going to be believed. Um, and this is really a powerful weapon with people with positional authorities, whether they're clergy or a coach or a teacher, right. someone that has right. status in the community, who's going to believe you versus believe me. Right. So it's, it's, they, they use a lot of weapons. They can use threats. Mm. That would be sort of at the far end of the manipulation spectrum is I will do something to you or um, we'll both go to jail or, you know, you won't, uh, I won't, no one will be able to buy you X, Y, or Z anymore if I get in trouble and, you know, guilt trips and it, it really runs the gamut. But all of these are just ways to worm their way past the child's defenses, begin right. manipulating the child making the child feel complicit or guilty 
or scared. Um, and, uh, and then also manipulating the support system around mm -hmm. the child. And in your experience, how long does that take? I mean, is this a process that takes a year or is this a process that takes a week? It varies by child and it varies by context. So there are some people that could, um, that could do this very, very quickly. Um, this happens online sometimes uh, with a child that, uh, you know, like sends a illicit, you know, a, a picture of themselves in a state of undress and very quickly. Now it's, oh, well, I'm going to send this to everybody in your school unless you do X, Y, and Z. Within one hour, that child could be twisting on the end of the line, completely scared, completely panicked, has made a dumb mistake and doesn't know how to back out of it without, you know, destroying their lives. And sadly, these are cases at their extreme. We see children suicide. We see children, you know, um, you know, complete acts of suicide because they just don't see a way out. It, it's, it's completely, it, it's, it's, it's horrific. It's horrific. The, the idea of this, this extortion and the manipulation that goes on with our very vulnerable, you know, children is, um, is, wow. is, is just, it's absolutely horrific. So, um, but yeah, that's, um, that's, that's in a nutshell, uh, how they, they go from start to finish with getting kids to do, you know, things that sexually gratify them. And, and then the kids, um, don't report because they've successfully right. silenced them. And then once they're in it, is there, do they, do the children really see any way out of it? Or so, I have to keep, I have yeah. to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah, that's, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. I mean, it's the, it's that, it's the latter. It's the, it's the, you know, um, it, you know, they're, they're, the offenders are really good at saying, look, just do this one more time or just do this one right. thing and then right. I'll leave you alone or what have you. And, if, you know, of course it just doesn't work that way. Then there's always another time. So yeah, the kids really just get more and more wrapped up and you know it's not their fault they're they're they just don't have the skills that we would have as an adults to set boundaries and know when to go to authorities and stuff like that i tell parents again you probably have listeners that are thinking you know um that this is a horrific thing that my child could make one mistake and could be wrapped up in this like what's the best defense i mean you can't right. you know if, if anyone's listening thinking well i'll just check their phones and i'll just put a, you know, some kind of software on there. You're, you're not, that's not going to, it's not going to do the trick. The kids can get around software. You're never going to be able to check the phones long, you know, fast enough and frequently enough. And right. it, it's easier said than done. Okay. But, but what can you do? What you can do, I think one of the most powerful things you could do is actually in the relationship you have with your son or daughter. And by that, I mean, you have to say something to the effect that that they will. It's not a matter of if. It's when they encounter something online that makes them feel uncomfortable. They can come to you and they will not be in trouble. That's a really big thing and really important to say to a child is no matter what happens, if you feel uncomfortable and you come to me, even if you've made some, you know, you, you kind of went down a path, you did some things right. that maybe you shouldn't do, that mommy and daddy are not going to judge you. We're not going to be mad because you came to us and said, I got myself into a pickle um, and I need some help, that you're not right. going to be in trouble. It, that but, communication. But doesn't that also thing, kind of demonstrate like the, the parent that you're talking about that will do that? sounds like they yeah. won't have a child who would be as vulnerable as, as somebody else. Those sound like pretty conscientious parents. Do you think that their kids fall prey to the online grooming process as well? I mean, for sure, the offenders are looking for kids that don't talk to their parents. They're looking for right. kids that say, I don't trust my mom. I don't like my dad. Or they're being actively abused, perhaps, or, or neglected. I mean, they're, those are definitely kids that are, are more vulnerable than the kids mm -hmm. that have a healthy relationship with their parents in general. Yeah, your point is well taken. Um, the, you know, can you have sophisticated, you know, conversations or will those conversations exist in some families 
um, that that are already at risk because of circumstances? No, you won't. But but I would still say, even you know, regardless of what kind of parent is listening right now, whatever kind of circumstance you're in, you can have that conversation. It doesn't have to be sophisticated. It can be, and by the way, it doesn't have to be limited to online. You can also say, if anybody touches you in a way that feels weird, you can come tell me. Like there's right. nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with saying, if anyone says anything to you that makes you feel weird, come talk to me. It it really becomes very simple in that regard. It doesn't have to be sophisticated. You don't have to say, well, there's a good touch and a bad touch. And this is a good touch, unless it's this. And you don't have to, you don't have to try to make it this big decision-making process for the child, because the offenders are going to listen for that and they're going to wiggle through it. I would keep it very simple. If somebody touches you, says something, or sends you something online, and it just makes you feel weird, like it doesn't mm-hmm. even, again, it doesn't have to be, and it's sexually inappropriate. What does that right. mean to a 10-year-old, you know? Just just if it makes you feel funny, come and show it to me, and I won't be mad at you. Right. right. That okay. would That would nip things in the bud, and it would allow parents to take appropriate action way, way early in the process. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Right. And by the way, we have done this sort of thing and trained parents in this sort of thing. And lo and behold, the parent, I've had people come up to me at conferences and say, I had that conversation with my child. And eight months later, the child came to me and said, something happened to me online. I feel weird about it. And it wasn't a sexual uh, grooming. It was that a friend of theirs mentioned suicide, or it was that someone said right. something about somebody having a gun in school or mm-hmm. whatever it was. So, Saying to your child something that makes you feel uncomfortable might not always be a sexual assault, but it might also prompt something that is right. equally concerning. So right, right. these are just good conversations to have. You're not That's in really trouble. helpful. That's really helpful to hear because, you know, I'm sure we all know as parents, it's overwhelming, especially today. I think it's harder to control the experiences of your child more than ever because of the internet. So yeah. the idea, I mean, for instance, my daughter's eight years old. She watches YouTube, we check what she watches, but mm-hmm. it constantly is a conversation. So yeah, I I think um, it's really important for, for you to give us these tools so that we can sort of focus on what we can control, which is our child to a certain extent, mm-hmm. more than their Finsta account, their, you know, their secret, you know, phone messages, whatever. We can't possibly control the ocean, right? But we can maybe control the boat a little right, bit. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that, that's well put. You know, and yeah. even if you can control your child's phone, when they're at a sleepover, they're not looking at their phone. They're looking at the kid's phone that's not being monitored by a parent or they're looking. I mean, so all of these things sound good in theory. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with putting as many, you know, barriers as you can. But educating the child and then educating yourself uh, as a parent and then having a relationship which communication flows freely is is really the best defense. I want to just talk about a very controversial subject, which is the treatment of pedophiles. And when you were at Butner, just start off with what we should think is the classic definition of a pedophile and are all pedophiles, sex offenders. Yeah. So a lot of people use some of the words in, in the world of sexual offending. They use the words or terms interchangeably. And, and sometimes they're, they shouldn't because they, they aren't synonymous. So the mm-hmm. word pedophile, for example, a lot of people say, oh, this, this school teacher was molesting, you know, three of his students, you know, they're 15, 16 year old students, you know, and, and uh, he's a he's you know he's been a pedophile his whole life or whatever. He's actually not a pedophile by definition because a pedophile is someone who's sexually attracted to prepubescent children. So before a child enters adolescence, before a child enters puberty, that um, that would be 
um, you know, the, the definition of pedophilia. People who are attracted to teenagers, we have a different term, what's called hebophilia. It's not used by everybody, but um, that is the term that's used, or a febophilia, which is uh, sexual attraction to older teenagers, like 16, 17, 18. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so pedophiles is, is officially, uh, strictly speaking, sexual attraction to prepubescence. Now, not all pedophiles are child molesters, and not all child mm-hmm. molesters are pedophiles. So most people get the first one because I say, well, not all pedophiles are child molesters. They're like, yeah, because they haven't acted out on it yet, right? They haven't molested a child. So that's true. Now, they may never molest a child or they may be waiting until they have access and opportunity. But at that particular time, they may not be a child molester, but they may have those fantasies. Now, the reverse is also true. And this is harder for some people because they're like, well, how could someone be a child molester and not be a pedophile? How could someone molest a, you know, someone who's under the right. age of 18? And I would ask that question. Yeah. I mean, it's reasonable. And, you know, what, what, what would be the motivation? And so there are different motivational pathways that bring people to these acts. So one of them would be a sexual interest in children. Another one, though, and I've already mentioned these briefly, one would be psychopathy. So someone who's a psychopath is basically just... Um, they they don't have empathy. Okay, a, a psychopath doesn't have the ability to empathize with others. They don't have remorse or guilt mm-hmm. in the same way as other people. So for a psychopath, they don't really care if somebody is fifteen or somebody is eighty. It doesn't really matter. You're sort of just in the wrong place at the wrong time. So a psychopath is kind of like I give the metaphor of a of a lion on the savanna who's hungry. And the lion is going to be looking for a, a weak gazelle to eat, right? It doesn't right. care if the gazelle is stuck in the mud, if it's old, if it's blind, if it's young, if it, it doesn't matter. It's lunch, right? And so for a psychopath, it's the same. When they're hungry, when they're, when they're interested in, you know, in, in committing a sexual act, it doesn't really matter who's in front of them. If you're right. vulnerable, you're going to be a victim. Okay. So, so their motivational pathway is different. And even though their victim might be a 15-year-old girl jogging down the jogging path, um, they will commit an act of rape or sexual assault, but it's not because she's 15. They don't, they didn't care. Right. Um, another motivational pathway, as I mentioned, would be a sadist. A sadist is interested in, um, they are aroused by inflicting pain, humiliation, or suffering on another person. It's not always pain. A lot of times people think, oh, sadist is inflicting pain. Right. Um, it's really more about degrading and emotionally harming people than it is just inflicting pain. So mm-hmm. for a sadist, a child is an exciting victim because they're very vulnerable. Then you can, they're easy, you know, you can hurt them easily and, and you'll get that immediate reaction from them of pain and suffering. So for a sadist, they're an ideal victim, but not because they're necessarily sexually interested in children, but they're sexually interested in that infliction of humiliation or degradation. So, um, you know, and there's also this, what we call the opportunistic offender. And that's almost like the psychopath, but they might be sort of antisocial, like criminally minded. Um, They're, uh, maybe an easy way to say it is they're they're jerks. They're they're selfish. They're self-centered. They're arrogant. They're 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 egocentric. They and they're out drinking or what have you. They come home. They stumble into their trailer or their apartment, and their 15-year-old niece is asleep on the couch. They sexually assault her, fondle her, and then go pass out in the back bedroom. Mm-hmm. Now that isn't motivated again by a sexual interest in 15-year-olds. It's just Again, opportunistic. Right. She's in the wrong place at the wrong time, right. and he does what he does, and then you know goes back. He might feel guilty about it the next day. He might feel terrible about it, uh, or he might not. Again, because he's very mm-hmm. selfish, and he's like, whatever, she'll live. Or she was asleep. She doesn't even know what happened. These are the distortions that mm-hmm. they use to justify what they did. Mm-hmm. She's still a victim of sexual assault, and he's still a perpetrator. So that I'm no, I don't minimize that crime one iota. In right. any of these different types, each type is completely accountable right. and responsible for what they did. So they come to you at Butner. You have a sex uh, a sex treatment program. Yeah. What does that entail, and 
how long does it take for someone to not be a pedophile or is it the kind of thing where they're always an alcoholic and they're just learn to uh, resist their urges? And the final question, which also will open up the can of worms is, does treatment work? Yeah. Will someone always be a pedophile? And is this a, an exercise in futility? Yeah. So, okay. So there's going to be two parts of this. So one, okay. the first part is, uh, the first part is, do, do we have a cure for pedophilia? Can we cure pedophilia? Uh, and the answer is no. Um, we do not have talk therapy, group therapy, individual therapy. Uh, we do not have a medication. We do not have surgery. We do not have any chemical castration or surgical castration. Um, we have no method that cures pedophilia. None of those methods that I just mentioned can cure pedophilia or hebophilia or voyeurism or exhibitionism or any of the, or sadism or any of the other paraphilias or fetishes or anything else that's out there. We do not know how to cure sexual deviance. So second part, why then were the American taxpayers paying money, paying my salary right. <laughs> to conduct treatment at a federal prison? Right. If there's no cure. And the answer to that is, um, is that our model was not a curative model. We weren't trying to cure them. We were trying to help them manage this deviance so they never again hurt another human being. Yeah. Because I can't reach into anyone's mind and change what they think about. And by the way, it's all self-report anyway. I could ask you if you were an offender, hey, are you still thinking about kids? You say, no, I'm cured. Okay, well, it's all self-report anyway, mm -hmm. but, but we don't have that ability. So if I can't change what you think about and what you fantasize about, then what, where is the point of intervention? The point of intervention is that is moving from impulse into action. So for example, here's an easier way to understand it. There's a rule out there that you're not supposed to covet your neighbor's wife, right? You right. might've heard that rule. Heard it, yeah. Right? Okay, <laughs> so there's a rule now, or presumably their husband. You're not supposed to covet other people's husbands and wives, but people, there has to be a rule, which must mean that there are people out there doing a little bit of coveting, a yes. little bit of like straying, right? Yes. But you're not supposed to. So you have the urge and the impulse. We're human beings. We've got drives and interests and, you know, whatever. But we also make promises and we also have social conventions and we have boundaries and we have ways that we've set up our life such that we don't do just whatever the heck we want to do. We we, we constrain our impulses right. in normal society. And when people don't, they, they tend to be punished for that. So what we're trying to do is help offenders that have these impulses and fantasies not creep into their nephew or their niece's bedroom at night, but instead have enough insight and internal self-regulation as well as external management um, support systems and treatment programs and some medications can help with unbidden fantasies and help with depression and other things that can kind of, you know, feed into these predilections. So we can do other things on an external right. you know, system and then do things internally through therapy and stuff like that to help these people learn to avoid high risk situations, learn when are they more likely to start having these fantasies when they're under stress, when they're emotional, you know, when they're sad or angry or what, and then how do you cope with those things in a healthier environment? How, right. where can you go to when you're having these thoughts so that you don't creep into your, you know, right. your relative's bedroom. So the, so to answer your question, treatment is somewhat effective in decreasing acting out. Um, it's not amazingly effective. I have to be honest with you. The research is not stellar in our ability to prevent recidivism. It's not great because, you know, this isn't like a spider phobia. This is a sexual drive. This is a biological appetite. And it is very, very difficult to stop someone someone's drive. It's, it's very hard to just say, we'll just stop doing that. Or, well, let's just, you know, put a, let, let's dam up the rapids by putting a log across the river. Yeah. Good luck with that. It's going to go around and over and under, and it's very, very difficult. So 
you know, is it worth the effort? I think some of the research shows 10%, 15% reduction in recidivism. That's a lot of kids that aren't being harmed. That's a right. lot of adults that aren't being, you know, assaulted. Right. Every little bit helps, right? I mean, we can't like get away from that old adage, mm -hmm. but can we be doing better? Can we, do we have more to learn? Do I cross my fingers every day and hope that somebody invents something or finds the little spot in the brain that we can excise with a laser so that people are no longer interested in kids? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. I feel that way. So is the likelihood that a pedophile will reoffend extremely high in your experience? Yeah. So, so there's a lot of psychologists and mental health professionals that go into court and they'll, they'll raise their right hands and swear to tell the truth. And they'll say things about how low the recidivism rate is, particularly for people that have downloaded child sex abuse material. And what they're actually referring to when they refer to this research and they fool a lot of people. And, and there are a lot of, you know, members of our judiciary that buy some of these arguments that it's like, it's very low, but what they're actually referring to is, when they cite recidivism research is it's not reoffenses, it's reconvictions. What that uh -huh. research is showing is how many people are reconvicted. Now, the people who do that research would say, well, that's a pretty good proxy. You know, it's good enough. And I accounted for it statistically. No, you didn't because there's what's called base rates. And I won't bore your, your, your listeners here, but in essence, how many people commit an act of arson that are undetected. Very, very few. Almost all arsons. If you burn down a house, people know about it. Most murders go detect. I mean, you might not find the body, but we know that there was somebody missing. Child right. sexual abuse, child sexual abuse, and actually assaults of adults as well. 84% of victims never tell anyone ever what happened, mm -hmm. including adults. So we have a very, very low base rate of people who even disclose what happened to them. Then, and by the way, with little kids, we have pre-verbal kids. We have kids that are on the autistic spectrum. We have kids that are cognitively developmentally yeah. delayed. We have kids that are undocumented. We have kids that are, you know, for lots of different reasons, are exceptionally either unable or are very unlikely to ever disclose lots of different variables out there with them, but some of them actually literally can't. And then of those who can, and if they're told, we have now we have a big percentage of kids that aren't believed. Then we have kids that are believed and the kids recant, which is right. very common. Right. Mm -hmm. And then people don't believe them again. Then we have how many people then say, let's just handle this in our family. Let's just handle this within the church. Let's just handle this, you know, within our youth serving organization or youth sport, because we don't want our reputation to get out. We don't right. want X. We don't want to be involved in the legal system. So you have all of this crushing and silencing mm -hmm. of all of these things. It has to go to the trial. The person has to be found guilty. They can't plead to a lesser offense. Yeah. All of these things have to happen before that shows up as a reconviction. Some estimates say that's about 1% of all sexual offenses will end oh. up being showing up in court records. So when someone goes to court and says, well, the, re the recidivism rate is very low, they're not counting 99% of offenses. <laughs> they're only looking at a very tiny number. Right. right. So now, do I think it's, you know, do I think it's 95% of offenders reoffend? No, I don't. But do I also think it's 13%? No, it is, you know, it is somewhere in the middle. And that number varies by motivational pathway. What type of treatment and management do they have in place? Right. You know, how prolific were they? How strong is their drive? What inhibiting? It's, it's so complex that I can't even just throw out a number. There right. are some people when they left Butner, we said, this person's at low risk. There are other people that we said, this person's at moderate risk. Some people were high and a very few people we said they are very high risk. And some of those people came to me the day before they left prison and said, Dr. Burke, I'm going to do the best I can, but I think I'm going to be at a playground in two weeks. Now, that person is at very high right. risk for reoffense. By the way, that guy was rearrested in three weeks. Um, so, you know, they vary 
And that's why to do these kind of risk evaluations, to do these kind of risk assessments requires a lot of you know, advanced education, but also a lot of experience in understanding how to you know, assess all of these dynamics to be able to predict the right. risk. Yeah. Dr. Michael Burke, thank you for presenting an extraordinarily, I would say grim, but accurate and illuminating discussion on the, the mind and methods of the child sex offender. I think everybody is better equipped at having heard your uh, discussion. And Caitlin Ward, thank you very much for being the every woman today. Thank you, first of all, as a parent too, this is really, really invaluable to have somebody who knows what they're really talking about rather than just, you know, family or whatever saying, you know, just keep an eye out. Well, no, what does that mean? How do I do that? So this was really, really helpful as a parent. If there are some of your listeners who are curious about, um, you know, finding materials that might be age appropriate um, because, you know, different ages are going to be, you know, need materials that are geared for them. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children has a number of resources, both for parents as well as children, and in different you know languages. So you can access you know videos and games and written materials, and they will help you have some of these conversations with your kid, both about online safety as well as as um, you know hands-on uh, safety at home or or school and other places. So the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children would be an excellent resource for for um, parents to to, to um, you know, to look for appropriate resources. Excellent. As you know, we're just getting started here at Chasing Evil, and we would really appreciate your support. Tell your friends and coworkers about Chasing Evil, and if it's not too much trouble, a five-star rating and a glowing review wouldn't hurt either. Much appreciated. We can't do it without you. And finally, Chasing Evil is produced with the cooperation of the United States Marshal Service and contains interviews with current and retired employees as well as other persons. Opinions, positions, and views expressed by any of them may not reflect the official views, positions, or policies of the United States Marshal Service. Stay safe, everyone. Hey.